This is the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. It's episode 65. So let's roll. today is Tina Harris. Tina is a Canadian-born multi-instrumentalist with a diversity of talents as performer, composer and musical director. With beginnings in the community arts, she's been a band leader, teacher, composer, arranger and all-round boss for many styles of ensemble, including big bands, cabaret, Latin, funk and a cappella. Theatre musical direction credits include the recent 2019 Australian tour of Hear the Musical, the Helpman Award-winning Smoke and Mirrors, which featured Iota, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and Tina was also the musical director for Hear Me Roar at the Sydney Opera House, arranging for and leading an eight-piece all-female band, and six celebrated Australian divas in honouring the great female singer-composers of our time. As well as having played bass or guitar and keys for many Hayes Theatre musical productions, including In the Heights, Sweet Charity, Assassins, Little Shop of Horrors, Rent, High Fidelity. Tina also has several of her own projects, um, including Tijuana Taxi, as well as her formidable 12-piece salsa orchestra, El Orquestron, and her Afro-Cuban trio, Oriente Tres. In this chat, we talked about a bunch of her different projects, life as a musical director, what makes a good show musician, her influences, balance, the future, and much more. So ladies and gentlemen, please give it up with the incomparable, the formidable, Tina Harris. Cheers. I think we're rolling. Okay. Tina Harris, welcome, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thanks, Stevie. How Thanks I, for having me. No worries. How are you? Yeah, I'm feeling quite nice and relaxed, actually. Right. It's, yeah, having that end of year re- little dip. Uh-huh. It's not going to be a heavy Christmas season for me. Is it usually? Oh, you know, it comes and it goes. Sometimes uh, okay. you get the kind of... Um, the corporate things, and then other times it's, it, as luck would have it, it's very quiet but for a few of the Latin gigs that I do mm-hmm. and then I've, then a project that I'm involved in starting uh, just before Christmas, which is uh, a theatre show at the, which, which will be a Sydney Festival Spiegel Tent. Right. So when does 
Uh, so do you break for Christmas for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. They give us a few days off. We start rehearsing before, and they, it's just a four-piece band, I think. Um, one actor. It's kind of a cabaret. It's a cabaret show called Betty Blockbuster Follies Reimagined, <laughs> based on a show that existed back in the mid-'70s, which Reg Livermore did. I don't oh, know. Oh, right, you, I do. Yeah, know. Okay. Um, after his success with the Rocky Horror Show, right. he put on this other show, which I think was devised by himself, and um, and it was using a lot of songs of the day, uh, kind of breaking boundaries with gender definitions and and uh, whatever. So they've reimagined it, and um, I'll be involved in that production. That's great. And um, you just finished up a season with hair. Yes. Right. So we'll talk. Musical. We'll talk a little bit in detail more about that a little bit sure. later. So, yeah, you were just saying um, before we started record, it's nice to kind of yeah it, chill after back because that sounded pretty full on. It was a three months very intensive time, yep. and um, so then it was over, and I just had a week of staring at a wall, <laughs> and then. Um, I, you know, have a few music students, so they've come back and then I've had a couple of gigs. So it's just been pretty lightweight time and, you know, reading books and having a walk. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. So do you teach from your house? Yeah, I've, got, I've just got about five students, and oh, um, which is kind of how I like it because I can mix gigs or shows and my few students, most of whom are delightful. So I really enjoy that. I've got two 15-year-old girls learning bass. Mm-hmm. Um, a 10-year-old girl on piano, guitar and drums. Awesome. And she's great. <laughs> and then her little sister and um, and then an, a, a mature age, I mean, a, you know, a young man who's studying guitar. Great. Uh, well, actually, he's studying music and he wanted to learn piano, but because he plays guitar, we can kind of take it all in and go, oh, awesome. if you know that on the guitar, check it out on the piano. So and he's smart, so he gets it. So I, it's mm. very the value of a multi-instrumentalist teacher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Okay, well let's um, want to roll back to the early days. Now you're from okay. you're born in Canada. Yep, born in Montreal, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, to to uh, an Australian father mm-hmm. and m- mother Canadian born, and her parents were uh, Jewish immigrants, I guess, back in the early. 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, they came, one from England, but f- like from Russia via England and the other one from Russia. So they're Russian Jews that went to Canada. Um, both of them were from musical families. My grandfather and grandmother both played violin. And my grandfather, ha- that was his career uh, as a violinist in the Montreal Symphony and right. and so on. Never did they aspire to or imagine that I would end up a musician. Right. In fact, you there were you couldn't have been more surprised than than my grandparents for some reason when I, it turned out that that's what I ended up doing because I didn't go through I guess the traditional steps that you would take to okay. study music and then work as a musician. Right. Did did you ever get to see your your grandfather playing? Yeah. Yes. When I was little, we used to go to see uh, various uh, ballets or you know opera. Well. Operetta Gilbert and Sullivan. We saw the Russian Ballet um, do Swan Lake. These are, you know, snapshots yep. that I've got in my mind from childhood. Yep. Um, and then after he he finished with the symphony, that was 30 years, I think, of work, 
he freelanced. Okay. And he, but I don't think I really saw him in his later period, but he played with the likes of Tom Jones and Procol Harum and Tony Bennett. Wow. With whom he exchanged caricatures. Really? Yeah, wow. like someone, because my grandfather was a, like a, a humorist. Right. Uh, he, he drew So was my, gra- my grandfather was like that Oh, too. really? Yeah, yeah, that's, that was his thing. Yeah, yeah mm. he'd show up sometimes at someone's wedding or they'd hire yep. him to, um, and someone said, hey, Harry, um, you know, Tony's a draw, he draws and they put them in a room together and they sketched one another. <laughs> so it's very sweet. And he was a funny guy, my right. grandfather. Yep. Right. Um, what was it like growing up in Montreal? Well, I grew up there till I was only nine. And only, then, okay. we, then we moved to the Connecticut. So oh, right, I spent okay. another eight or so years in in the USA, okay. in Connecticut. So my earlier years in Canada, you know, I have my childhood memories. I've been back since and, yep. and see how it's moved on, I guess. Right. It's a great city, Montreal, but I, I wouldn't recommend going there in winter. It's it's, it's nasty. It's bitter, <laughs> and people change in that cold. Oh, like really? You, yeah. Someone else mentioned it as well. Not Montreal, but a different part of the world that they'd been in, and in a short space of time, once autumn kicks in, between the beginning of autumn and the end of autumn, everything changes. Mood. So, and then, but on the other end, it's the same. Once spring's truly there, it's like people come out of their house. They start smiling. They engage, they make eye contact. It's just, oh, and, and the wow. reverse happens at the end where people kind of, they go into protection the shutters mode. Close and t- mm, the shutters close. Wow, exactly. The shutters close. They pull all the, you know, everything gets pulled in the house and they bunker down. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really different because it's, it's bitter. You know, it's right. 30 below yeah, no. in any um, measurement. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, it's too cold for me, I'm afraid. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think I've become a, a cold phobic, more so being in Australia yeah. because it's moderate climate, yeah. but it's cold in the houses. Yeah, for sure. So you're almost better off being outdoors and doing exercise and yeah. ca- getting warm than sitting around a bar heater or a, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You might as well put those shutters up and lock yeah, yourself yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, did... When did music start then? That's an interesting question. Well, while, you, while you're in the US or Canada, the it, it fir- was in Canada. Yeah, okay. so I was learning. Okay, yeah, I remember the, the, those again. The, the childhood snapshots. Yep. Um, we had a piano in our house, and after I'd finished smashing the keys with a fly swatter as a six-year-old, because that's what you think is a good thing to do. <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> Regret. Um, I don't know. You know, you have kids, right? Yeah. You, you know what they do. Yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. know what they, they yeah, think yeah. something. Oh, that's an interesting effect. It's an experiment. Yep. I'm going to try the fly swatter. And, and so the, our poor piano ended up with chipped teeth. Oh, right. Nevertheless, it was still perfectly playable. And I started doodling and making melodies and I could work out Mary Had a Little Lamb. So the grandparents said, get her piano lessons. And then I started piano lessons at that age. So um, that went on. My mother played in a little folk trio and um, I ended up getting a ukulele. So I sort of had a little bit of the chordal thing. And when my hands were big enough, she taught me some chords on the guitar. And I also remember a particular time when she was having a rehearsal with her her girlfriends, um, I started to sing harmonies 
right. as a thing and just thought that made sense. Mm -hmm. So my ear for vocal harmonies and therefore harmony was um, kind of in gear. Right. I guess I, I had that inclination mm -hmm. to harmony, which, and you know, who knows what came first, my mother's Andrew's sister's records or the Beatles or right. whatever, that there was, <clears throat> that most of the music that was played in our house had harmony of some kind, mm -hmm. which, you know, music does by definition. There's inherent harmony in a piano chord or a guitar chord, but yes. when you hear it clearly defined by either, say, a big band orchestra and you mm -hmm. hear the horns and... So I always was drawn to harmony of some kind. Right. Do you remember the first band or artist that... that grabbed Beatles. You? It was the Beatles. No question, awesome. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yes, I'm from the, that generation that had the Beatles. Okay. So, uh, did you were you sitting there and saw them on the Ed Sullivan show? Yes! You did, right? Yes! Okay. <laughs> right. Yes, in fact, so they came onto the Ed Sullivan show. That was it, smitten. Right. And um, and then I mean, they must have been on a few times. I seem to recall. And one week, Ed Sullivan <laughs> said, "Next week at the same time, the Beatles will be coming into your home." At blah blah blah. And so the next week at that time, I was out on my front porch looking up the street to expect the Beatles to come into my home. <laughs> oh, well. Great. <laughs> yeah, I didn't understand the power of metaphor, I suppose. Right. Anyway, um, but, yeah, so the Beatles was a big deal. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, did you start seeking out the music? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, that was it. You know, I remember listening to the radio, and at the time um, there weren't as many. I mean, now it's exponentially you can't keep track yeah. of all new music because yeah. it's just, aside from the fact that there are more people in the world, there are just more people producing music mm -hmm. at every moment. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so in, in that time you could turn on one or two radio stations and kind of have it covered, right. or so it seemed, right. you know, and know who the groups of the day were. And okay. I, I suppose, I don't know. Right. I mean, it was, it was radio was the means of conveying information for music uh, and then the occasional TV show that hosted live music. Mm. You know what just came into my mind? Remember the show, the, uh, well, it was part of the same stable, the Beverly Hillbillies, Green yeah. Acres and Petticoat Junction. Yes. There was an episode of Petticoat Junction where the, I don't know, Billy Joe, Bobby Joe and Betty Joe, the three sister cousins... <laughs> <laughs> oh, whatever they were, yeah. um, um, they played in an all-girl band, and there was they had another girl there. I don't know who she was, but they so they had a four-piece all-girl band, and I think that was pivotal to me as uh, as a would-be later on musician because I cannot stress how important it is for girls to have role models. And even if they were miming or faking, just the representation of girls sitting there with instruments looking convincing enough to a however old I was, you know, a six, seven, eight-year-old or something, um, was like, oh, okay, right. Let's do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And, and, you know, and I, was like, <laughs> I have, there is home movie footage of me at a birthday party with my friend playing pretending to, with Beatles wigs on, <laughs> pretending to play gu fake guitars. They were triangle-shaped pillows. Yep. And um, 
you know, we were just emulating the Beatles because that's what awesome. you did in those days. Awesome. Yeah. So it wasn't like, I mean, I then was dabbling with it. It's not like I suddenly went, I must be a musician. No, no, that didn't happen for quite a long time, actually. Mm-hmm. I played, but I never thought I would be a musician or could be or would dare call myself one. Mm-hmm. That seemed, well, I wouldn't have even have investigated what that felt like, but to, to say I'm a musician seemed preposterous as a kid, you know, where I think it's different for boys. Mm. Yeah, it took me a while um, for a, for a, a colleague to say something about me being a musician, like an implied in, in, implication, um, and I went, oh right, I could right. So I call myself a musician, right. which is a bit sad, really. But um, I do think that that is the plight of some. I should say most girls. I, I used to teach down at the Bondi Pavilion in a course called the Bondi Youth Wave. Mm-hmm. And um, it was so common to get, we'd get 30 participants in per year. Mm. And we did songwriting and we did jamming and improvisation and, and all that stuff, master classes. And at the beginning, we'd go around the room and ask everyone, you know, so what do you do? What's your, what do you like to listen to? What instrument do you play or want to play? And... And you'd get guys come in and go, yeah, I'm a lead guitarist. <laughs> and, you know, you think you're a lead. You don't play the rhythm guitar, but you only play lead guitar, which was true. They only yep. play as if it's a different actual kind of guitar. Um, and a girl would go, um, oh, you know, I, I know a bit of guitar. That's as far as you get. And then you realise she's actually better than he is. Yeah, right. he, d- he says he's a lead guitarist because he has no rhythm and can't play. <laughs> but he can play a few lead breaks. Yeah, right. You know, and, and that's just the typical thing. It's a, it's a confidence thing and role modelling, I'm, I'm convinced. Right. Who was the first, just on that then, mm-hmm. so who was the first all-women's band that you saw and I'll went. tell you who they were. They were an Aussie uh, all-girl band called Sheila. Okay. Great name, eh? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I saw them on uh, International Women's Day one year when I first got involved in the women's movement and there was a dance and I went along and there was this all-female band and that was a strong memory because I remember thinking, um, I know those chords. And I don't know if I would have done that if I'd seen, like I wouldn't have looked as scrutinised or something in the same way and think, oh, I, I know, I knew the guitar, I know those chords. And I can't remember now if it was before or after I got my first electric guitar because mm-hmm. I had only played acoustic. Mm-hmm. It was within six months either side that I had an electric guitar, I think after right. I bought it. And, um, and then I was in a, my first band, which was an all-girl band. Oh, awesome. Angry lesbian band, actually. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, that was my that was my first step into the the music, and um, you know we actually had a bit of a success there. We were a cult band, as right. you might imagine. Um, but Stuart Coop, who's one of the the rock writers, even to, to today, mm. um, gave us quite the big thumbs up on our uh, single and then our album. Right. What was the name of the band? The Stray Dags. Oh, you're the Stray Dags? Yeah. Oh, right. Awesome. <laughs> you heard of us? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, right. Fantastic. So. That's great. 
That's right. So that that's um well, you know, a major relationship to be in with the band for it was about four years or so. Yep. Um and that was it was probably at the end of that time that I I then got involved in a touring theater show. Yep. Um there where I met the person who told me that I was a musician. Oh, it what? took me that to you that needed point. Somebody to tell you that. Yeah, it's not like they said, oh, by the way, you're a musician. But they, okay. I mean, he was very, he was paying me compliment. He, he was just oh, sort of saying, you know, I, um, I, I enjoy playing with you or you're a musician that blah, 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 something like that. And okay, I was I like, oh, it was implicit that I was a musician. It wasn't like he advised me of, of that, um, you know, not like saying, by the way, you're gay. It wasn't that kind of like revelation. It was just right. an, it, it was an assumed right. thing. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> now going back to because um, you just you haven't talked about bass yet. You've mm. talked about piano. Right. Now, were, you, were you learning graded piano with the, with a teacher? Not or just... kind of. In my early years, um, yes, they were graded, but not. It wasn't like this. A what do they call it here? AMEB the Australian sure. Music Education, I forget what they call it, but, um, you know, whether you go through the grades and, and right. so on. So we moved from Canada to the USA when I was just turning nine, mm-hmm. and then I didn't have lessons for a year or two, I think, mm-hmm. while we reestablished, and then finally I thought, um, yeah, I want piano lessons again. Awesome. So we got this teacher who I hated, <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing that, about him was... Um, it turned out he was quite a fucking good jazz player, right. but I had no idea. I just thought, it's Mr. Wurr, and he comes over at Saturday morning and he sits there like a lump and makes me read, which my other piano teacher never made me do. She would get the book out and play a song and then I would go, okay. you know, I'd kind of, and so my ear developed, but my reading was pathetic really so she was so soft and sweet she never kind of like forced me to do anything and I mean I learned to read music but not well because most of the time I was just sort of half listening and half following along I don't know um so after three years with her from I guess the age of six to nine or so then we moved and I I took up lessons with Mr. Wurr Mm -hmm. and uh yeah he just sat there and I just sat there and waited for him to play the piece and he went, waited for me to play the piece and I kind of went, aren't you going to play the piece? And he went, no, you are. So, of course, I hated him from that moment. But anyway, so, you know, then he got out the book of Hannon and the reason I ended up with him is because I think I mentioned to someone I I was interested to learn jazz. Mm. Um, And so his way of teaching that was to get out the Bach and the Hannon Thanks for nothing. Like while <laughs> while those are great um, parts of the toolkit, he could have inspired me in so many other ways. Because one day I was hanging out with my friend and, I mean, I must have been uh, 11 and we were, you know, back in those days where you could just wander around the neighbourhood and nobody knew where you were. Yeah. I heard this music coming from the, there was like a little clubhouse, country club, Ooh, that sounds amazing. Let's go and check it out. And so we snuck into the bushes and looked in the window and it was him. <laughs> it was my teacher playing beautiful jazz. Right. So that was uh, kind of a shame. But, yeah, so like that was his, t- his idea of teaching jazz was not the same as playing jazz. 
Right. Which is the case. You, you can be a great player but not a great teacher. Did and he, do you think he was trying to teach you the way that he was taught? Probably. To get, to get there? I wouldn't be surprised because right. well, I look back now and I think, well, obviously the Hannon exercises, they're, they're essential and understanding Bach and, and all the, the keys and, and the mechanics of it right. is essential. But there are much more pleasurable ways of doing it for a kid <laughs> right. to teach them a song and then explain why that song is cool. Yeah. That's how I prefer to teach, mm. I, I guess. Well, it's a bit of a mixture, you know, mm. like a little bit of reading, a little bit of improvisation, a little bit of theory, understanding how to make a chord and then what kind of scales relate to that chord and, you know, all right. those things That's to, to, so that they get to have a bit of fun right. and not walk out of the um, lesson feeling beaten down. Right. So so that was, uh, yeah, Mr. Were. Um and then, and so I had, I was a bit of a dabbler on the guitar. I never, never right. had lessons as a kid. I just had my chords that I knew and I had a, met a friend. We wrote songs together and we played. Cool. Um, so we used to go up into school with our acoustic guitars and play our little songs about puppy dogs and castles. <laughs> <laughs> I could play you some. Yeah. <laughs> I've still got a recording Have of us. Oh, yeah. Played. Yeah. Um, so then fast forward forward because then we left the states came to australia and i didn't have any more lessons right. sorry so what uh, why did you leave um well canada, dad was australian canada. oh canada yeah he got headhunted for a job right. he used to design catamarans oh cool boats right. so uh anyway we we went from canada to the usa yep. stayed there for a while and then there how was many a, years in connecticut eight okay about eight something like that mm-hmm. um and then, uh, yeah, so then finally I guess he just thought, you know, I'm over it. I want to go back to Australia after having, he'd been in the North, in the Americas for, in North America for 30 some odd, five years or so. Right. Um, yeah, anyway, so one thing led to another and we ended up back in Australia, well, I ended up in Australia mm-hmm. where I finished high school and then um, eventually was at uni where I met like-minded people, got involved in street theatre, my first band, The Stray Dags, mm. um, and then that was guitar. So I was a guitarist for a while. After however many years, not that many more, um, somebody that knew that I was something of a multi-instrumentalist mm. let me know that they were auditioning for this theatre show, which was a musical but not the sort of standard like, you know, Oklahoma or... Um, Les Miserables kind of musical. It was what they now call a revusical. <laughs> right. In that it's it was a jukebox jukebox musical. They right. had a bunch of rock and roll songs, and they needed the people that were in it had to play at least two instruments well and and four competently. So and be an actor and sing. So the right. cast is was the keep, band. Is this the, to keep the budget down? No, it's it's, it's it not started that, not that out kind that, of thing. Okay, right. No, <laughs> yeah, funny. No, no, to keep the budget down, they just get backing tracks these days. Right. You know, or right. something like that. Right. They don't bother with live musicians. Um, so, but I'll, yeah, we'll get onto that later because yeah, because yeah. I have just been in a band with an, in a show with a nine piece band. So yeah, yeah, I want to talk credit about to that. Yeah, but absolutely. Um, 
Right. So it started in England. It started, the show itself was something that started in England with a troupe and they all were kind of bits of, you know, they played a bit of this and um, and so they put the show together with them all doing everything. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare, singing, playing instruments and it was set in a sci-fi um, setting so it was sci-fi, rock and roll, Shakespeare, all in one. Wow. <laughs> Together at last. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a show called Return to the Forbidden Planet, based on the 1950s movie Forbidden Planet, which was based on the Shakespeare's The Tempest. Right. And then somehow they thought, we'll put it to music and we'll use um, 50s and 60s rock and roll, some of which was some like Great Balls of Fire or Wipeout or um, uh, what's a couple of other of the good vibrations, right. just to name a, a few of the songs. Um, so they did this audition of this guy I knew who actually sold me a guitar. We'd, be, we'd become friends and he said, hey, you should check out this audition. Sounds like something you might do. Mm. So I went along and they had a room full of drums and bass and this and that, and I just had a ball. <laughs> Like, can cool. you play this now, maybe? <laughs> and um, so I just, you know, had a bit of fun and um, and I got the gig. And my awesome. my it was 12 people in the cast, three of whom were women, two who had the only speaking parts. So I was the one that covered both the female roles and I was just running around playing things. Right. So I got to play bass, drums, guitar, keyboard, saxophone, Trombone. Guitar. Wow. Saving. I don't play the trombone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I did play a song on the trombone right. once. Right. And they got teachers in to help us, okay. like, learn, uh, you know, just enough technique to get by right. for those of us that never touched that particular instrument. But most of my songs I was playing bass. Right. And at that point, I th- by the end of that run, which was, like, a, roughly a year, um, I thought, you know, I'll probably get more work as a bass player than as, as a guitarist because there are so many average guitarists out there. Right. And um, I could probably have a, there's a niche for me, I, I suppose. Right. Well, I don't know. I just, it was a good decision. And then mm-hmm. I, I ended up uh, going to AIM for a year mm-hmm. back then. Yep. In the early, mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't really looked back, I guess, you, yeah. yeah, as a bass player. And every now and again I've had uh, a gig which has asked, if, can you play, like, be a guitar guitar two, guitar, keyboard two player. So I'm not the main player of either of those, but uh, enough to play some organ, some synth, some whatever, mm-hmm. and then some, you know, mm. whatever kinds of guitar is required. Mm. Um, okay, I want to go back a little bit from um, that Canada to Connecticut mm-hmm. to Australia. I want to sort of dabble into how your music taste was changing and what what you started listening to. Was it okay. was it stuff based on what you were having to um, learn for gigs, or, or how was how was the the scene changing? Oh, that's interesting. Well, mm. I I never had to learn anything for a gig until oh. much more recently in my career. Okay. Because my first band was all originals. We didn't do covers. We just wrote okay. our own songs. Awesome. So, 
Um, I had no reference, really. Yep. I think what we did listen to was, um, okay, what was going on around at the time? Uh, the two major influences into the music were punk mm-hmm. and ska. Ah, cool. But not that I was heavily into either of those, but, you know, the B-52s. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a little bit of a polystyrene. There was a bit of attitude in the music, and mm-hmm. I think that came from the punk thing. But reggae and ska and the, the rhythms of that were something else that were filtering through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah, so from before that, I guess music that that I'd listened to back in the States was more um, post-Woodstock era or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Um, Would have been, yeah. Prog rock doesn't quite describe it, but, yeah, Mm -hmm. bands like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and then some of the blues bands of the era, Humble Pie, Jay Giles Band, believe it or not, they were a heavy blues band before they were a cheesy pop band. Right. You know, like a, you know, yeah. What is that thing they had? Shutter. Photo. What was that song of theirs? Anyway, photograph or something to do with cameras. <laughs> anyway, before that, like they were a heavy blues band with a with um, the blues harp player yeah. and mm. uh, and oh Johnny Winter and Edgar Winter. Oh cool. Like Edgar Winter was my idol. Uh, if I had an idol in that era, it was him. Mm. And he was a multi-instrumentalist. He was a keyboard player, drummer, saxophone player. Right. And he was a motherfucker. He, he was a bit of a savant, really. Um, so, yeah, I went to see him four times. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess I was, you know, moved by kind of your, he came to our high school, actually. Right. That's when I first heard him on my first ever LSD trip. Wicked. Yeah, that would make you fall in love with any artist, <laughs> whoever, what garbage was on that stage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty influential. So, um, yeah, so I went from there, I guess. So there was a bit of jazz in his background, and and I think that's probably proportionally where I am, that there's an um, implicit sense of jazz without being a jazz player. I gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to go back to it. I wanted to get a full uh-huh. idea. I get of it. You're you good. Yeah. I had to stand. <laughs> Take, takes me a while sometimes to get there in my head, but mm-hmm. you know. Then maybe I should interject one, uh, also key component yep. to my musical passion, totally. which is Latin music. Yep. And my mother had these cha-cha-cha records mm-hmm. when I was a kid that were just on. And the thing I remember most about them is the percussion, and I just hear the I hear the sound that those sort of 1950s, 60s recordings as well. They had a certain beautiful sound. The bongos were very clear, mm. but they're also mixed in with the other percussion instruments, so you didn't exactly know what was what. Um, and I, the I don't know the sound, the rhythm, the horns mm. that just sort of settled there underneath my consciousness for my entire development into a, a grown-up. Right. So I've always loved it but never knew, not never, but didn't always know what it was that I loved. Right. Yeah. Right. That's cool. All right. Well, let's go back to the the show. Okay. That, that show that. Oh, that yeah, that were, one. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So 
Um, how long did, did that run for? Yeah, over a period of oh, two years but not consistently. Right. Okay. And then that sort of segued into me studying at AIM. But what right. it did, did was it introduced me to some of the musicians that I would end up being lifelong friends with mm-hmm. and would lead me to other musicians and other situations in um, um, the theatre world that somebody knew me or they knew of me and they, they'd think that I suited whatever the next brief was. Mm-hmm. So I got a gig and then I met a new musician. And from meeting that next musician, I started meeting people that were players in other realms and the jazz or commercial or funk or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I put together, oh, no, there's a, I've missed something there, but... Yeah, I ended up with a kind of uh, funky jazz instrumental group that I composed all the music for. Right. But well, between then there was another band after my early all-girl bands was um, a thing called Hipso Facto, which was uh, some friends of mine and I who, another original project, just let's call it acid jazz for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. But it was at that era where... Um, us three, I think they were called, and um, early incognito, early nineties. Okay, so, something like that was starting to happen. Yeah, that, I guess that was all around about that time. That it was a beautiful blend of funk and jazz, jazz sort of sensibilities with funky grooves. Right, kind of dig, a little bit like yes, dig. Yes, yeah, dig yeah, exactly, yeah. Yep. exactly that yep. era, mm-hmm. and that that style, which was it, it, totally accessible. I think that by anyone that loved a groove and it wasn't so vastly deep jazz that you kind of went, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, so I've, I've had quite a few um, show people on. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so I've had like Steve, as you know, mm-hmm. um, Joe Acaria. Right, with whom I've worked. Yep, because um, you worked on Smoke and Mirrors. That's him. right. Yep, yep. Um, uh, Daniel Ma, you know Daniel? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, Jess Jumper. And you oh, still yeah. Play with Jess yeah, them? yeah. Yep, yep. So from talking to those um, those guys, yeah, it, it very much seems like, like you were saying about, um, you know, you meet that musician, that musician, that, yeah. they put you onto that show and then mm-hmm. you get to know that MD. and you know, That's right, yeah. Mm, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it is, and it's it is interesting. To, um, recently, and the last thing I did, I I, um, I asked, I invited a musician that I'm working with on another project. I just thought he's, apart from the fact that he really learns his shit, like he comes prepared, he does the homework, and he turns up, um, which is in its own way, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. higher worthy. Yeah. I uh, I just thought he had the right vibe f- to come on and do hair. And that was his first taste of mm, theatre or music theatre, if you want to call it that. Um, and I, I don't imagine it would be his last because he l- had a great time. I mean, it was a fun show. It was a rock show, great music. He got to use some fabulous sounds and licks and, you know, the, the music was gratifying to play. Mm. Um, so that's the kind, I guess that's how it works. You know, somebody invites someone in onto a show mm. and go, yeah, and it's a wage. You know, it's it's like you don't have to lug your gear every night to the show. That's its own reward, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're out of circulation to do other gigs. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Eh? It's a trade-off. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I was going to ask, yeah, what, what, what's your process? I'm sort of jumping forward to the MD thing, mm-hmm. Tina Harris, MD. All right. Um, and we'll go back and, and talk about how you got to that point as MD. Yeah. But just since we're talking about okay. this guy that was just on the show. Yeah. What, what are you specifically looking for in your musicians? Well, pretty much like I, I said. I mean, he was, he, this, this guy was a vibe. Obviously, it was a vibe, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and but see, I didn't know him that well before I, in fact, I didn't know him at all. Okay. For the first thing that I got him on, I was looking, I needed, <laughs> I do this Tijuana Brass tribute show, and I needed a guitarist who had and could play a 12 string electric. It's so specific and very rare. Mm. Um, so I rang a few people and they didn't have one, they didn't play one. I rang Joseph Calderazzo and he said, you got to try this guy, Seb Bartels. So I did and he never heard of me and who the hell are you? <laughs> but I described it, I, I don't know, I must have got, maybe I wrote to him before I called, I can't remember. Anyway, he seemed interested enough and we agreed, yes, let's do it. So when it, it, the time came to turn up for the first rehearsal and I'd put out all the charts and put him up on a Dropbox, but he'd done his own anyway. And he came knowing everything. He was, and he'd researched the band and he knew more about it than I did in the end. Like he right, really awesome. went into it. Mm. And I went, that's pretty cool. And then he was just really pleasant, but I didn't really get to spend that much time. I mean, we did the rehearsal, did the gig, and then everyone goes home. But I just thought, okay, let's get him on hair. And in mm. doing that, I got to know him more to realize that he is a vibe. He's a great guy. And he's got, um, you know, he's smart and interested. And I think people who are interested are interesting. Mm-hmm. So there we go. Mm. That's my little blurb. Yeah. <laughs> That's my reference. He can, he can record the reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so, okay, so that's him. So. Right, so what do I look for in, yeah. So when, when you're putting together. That's right. And so yeah. it is about the right person for the job. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can go through the list, the vast list of yeah. the wonderfully talented array of musicians in around Sydney, and someone might be the biggest motherfucker of the world but may not be right for that gig yep. um, for some different reasons. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's kind of a re- reading-heavy gig. So there's, there's one thing. It, it would be good if they could read because there's only so much oral prep you can do if it's like shitloads of notes. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so you want someone that does that, but also that somebody that's not going to go, well, um, you know, I- I'm not really interested in that artist or that music or whatever. Or I don't get out of bed for less than whatever. Mm. Uh, and although that is another issue, I, I cannot bring myself to offer a musician a shit wage so I'd rather not take a gig if it comes along like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what I mean, attitude. Mm-hmm. So attitude's a huge part of it. Um, you want someone that's just got to turn up with a smile. Um, and then there's the groove factor. If, uh, you know, they might be a technical monster but don't have a great sense of feel or, or groove or whatever it is and mm-hmm. space and... Mm-hmm. Um, want willingness to rehearse because, yep. like, I, I play in a, a, a few bands that are um, 
chart-oriented bands, like Mucho Mambo, for instance, was, is a 15-16 piece uh, 1950s mambo bands, wonderful orchestra, which Martin Taylor leads. It's been going on for over 10 years. Mm. And it's all charted because you can't have nine horn players reading charts and uh, have somebody decide, um, I think I'm going to change the arrangement spontaneously. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very tightly structured. Okay. Um, so for that, you do need somebody who's going to read. However, when you get that many players of that uh, in that league, they're not always available to rehearse. And then that gets a bit of a drag after a while. Mm. I mean, they don't rehearse often, but every now and again, they'll call a rehearsal and sometimes you get all the players, sometimes you don't. Right. Um, so, I mean, the, I guess what I'm getting at is you can tell when you watch a band that are great players and great readers, but they never rehearse as a band. It feels like you're watching well, a rehearsal in a way, because their their eyes are on their charts. They're not looking out away from those charts for dear life. Um, and they're not hired to. They're hired to read the parts. Mm-hmm. They're not hired to perform and show off, right. except when they get a solo. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's a thing. You know, I think there are a lot of, lot of throw-together bands out there that go, yeah, we know a bunch of songs. We commonly know them, but we're not going to rehearse because we're really good, so we don't need to. <laughs> And I think you can tell. Yeah. I really do. I think you can tell when there's no vibe coming off the stage. Right. So there's a balance, I guess, between I enjoy rehearsing just because I think it's a time to get to sort of uh, lock in and relate and look to look at people and, um, you know, interact in that way. And then you get on stage and you, you're doing the job. Mm. So, yeah, so there's lots of different criteria. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. All right. So let's go and build up to you becoming an MD. Mm-hmm. Right. So we've done the show. You've gone to AIM. Yeah. Um, you know, you're starting to get to know these people in the scene, starting to do some more shows. Um, was there a moment where you thought, actually, I, I want to be, I want to give a MDing a shot, or was it presented to you and it, you had to do it? It was more of a pres- presentation. <laughs> yep. So what happened was, let's see, um, I got into after let's see, nineteen ninety six or seven, I uh, was involved in a production of the Rocky Horror Show, one of the ones that keep going mm-hmm. around, and oh, it was the. It, it, yeah, um, so I, I played bass on that. The one after that was a show called Rent. The MD on that show, who'd done Rocky Horror, um, and hired me to play on Rent, but I wasn't hired originally as the bass player. I was hired as his assistant MD, huh. and that I would be uh, re- taking substituting for him when he went out to the audience to take notes for the show, like, you know, singing notes and overall music notes. So I had to take his chair, which was guitar two, keys two, mm-hmm. which was or- organ and synth and rhythm guitar, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. guitar two. So that put me in a, a seat of being a erstwhile musical director because I had to conduct the band and, mm-hmm. and do that and have that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was probably the first time. I mean, I'd done, I'd led things before. I'd led bands. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, and projects, maybe that put me in a position of 
you know, the things you have to do to be a musical director is not just to go one, two, three, four, but it's to wrangle musicians and make sure they come and organize rehearsals and prepare charts if it's that kind of band where the charts are necessary. Yep. Um, yeah. So he obviously saw something in me that I was able to do that because we'd been in that first show together, Return to the Forbidden Planet. Mm -hmm. So Planet, then Rocky, then Rent. Mm -hmm. By the time Rent was done, I was then the regular, in the second season, I was the bass player. Mm -hmm. And I did once a week a show where I conducted from the keys, the K2 G2 chair. Right. Um, then, then that was... Uh, so then it wasn't until, I think, oh, no, then I, it was actually earlier than that, I, I MD'd um, a comic big band called the Shirley Purvis Big Band. And comic, Shirley, comic big band. Comic big band. It was a sh big band show. It was a big band mm -hmm. with, um, it was a comic show. It was a cabaret review, really. Right, okay. Led by this comedian called, um, her character name was Shirley Purvis. She'd been on, remember the big gig? A show. It was an ABC variety comedy show called The Big Gig what back in. What was it? Late nineties, mm. mid late nineties. Yeah, I didn't get here till mid nineties. Ah, okay. Yeah. Right. May have been there, but I, I don't. No, not not sure. Well, Angie Moore was a member of a group called the Castanet Club, mm -hmm. and the Castanet Club has spawned such people as uh, Mikey Robbins. Oh um, right. Um, uh, Glenn Butcher, who's still doing theatre. There was an A. He he later was a, an ABC Triple J presenter called um, um, Steve Steve Abbott, who called Sandman. I don't know. Oh, if Sandman. Sandman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who else? Penny Biggins. Anyway, there was a, all of them. I know there's someone really important that I'm living out. But anyway, pretty much all of them to a letter are still active in mm -hmm. the in the entertainment world or the TV world or whatever today. So Angie put together her this hilarious big band and she played this character who's mm. just bizarre and very funny. Mm. And I was the MD of this band. Mm. I really didn't know what I was doing, but I did do. I presented charts. I provided charts for them. I could do that. Mm. And, um, and it was just a big fun show. So anyway, that's going back a little way. Somehow mm. or other I imagined that I could do it <laughs> yeah. and so did someone else and that's the key isn't it if yeah, you think a, you can everyone else does too yeah, yeah yeah I was so I want to ask when you were doing that the fill-in MD stuff uh -huh. do you remember the do you remember the feeling Ooh. was it was it you like, were you freaking out going oh my god or was uh, like oh man this is great it was a little bit of both awesome um yeah it's a little bit of both and that's how I remember, you know what it is? If you practice like a motherfucker, yeah. then you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so you have to not just practice your parts, but conducting mm -hmm. with the parts, which is um, someone else who took over a job like that asked me for advice and I went, practice conducting, which is what conductors, like real conductors do when they, you know, orchestral productors, they, conductors, they have to practice what their arms are doing it's like choreography yeah so you know you're counting in something over here and meanwhile you want that to happen that's without an instrument in your hand right so if you're playing any instrument you've got to have a way to get your hand on your instrument 
the notes you want to be playing and bang, let the note, let the, you know, the rest right. of the band know. So right. you might go three and uh, three, four, bam, 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 you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, or with my recent job, because I was conducting from the bass and the cast has to see you through a camera a monitor. They have a camera on you, just made sure there was enough for the neck of my bass. Right. Because, and they said that was a really clear way of understanding uh, this this thing that they could see. They're looking way out into the house where the TV monitors are mounted and they just see and doom, like that's the cutoff. <laughs> So, you know, you kind of make to be do. Ca- you'd have to be careful that you didn't get yourself into like a jacko. Yeah, And the right. bass sticks yeah, up in the oh, air no. and you put them off, you know. <laughs> well, that's, like I said, you practice every yeah, bit yeah. of that choreography. Um, <laughs> so the nerves, I think, came not from the part, but, yeah, making sure I counted in at the right tempo, in the right, you know, so that everyone was clear. You could understand. Like there was one little moment in here that I could go, three, four, Da, 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 da. One, two, three, four. Doom, 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 doom. And it, it had to segue quite unmusically. <laughs> right. You know, so they, they didn't relate to each other at all, these two things. You just have to, you just practice it. And I remember when the first show was over, opening night actually, not the first show, but opening night in Perth. And I just thought, well, I've never been that happy for an opening night to be over. Oh, but really? once right. it was over, and I thought, but I, but we did it. We did a good yep. job. Yep. It was really nothing went wrong. Um, and so you think, okay, there we go. Now we build from there. We can relax because opening nights are horrible. They're, they're artificially, there's all this pressure to be fabulous. <laughs> Plus the people that are in the audience in a way, are artificially enjoying it. I mean, they might genuinely be enjoying the show, yeah, but, the, but they want to make you feel, you I, know. I understand, yeah. So, you know, a lot of friends and and, and those kinds of theatre people that do that. <laughs> um, have you played shows, productions, where you've been MDing or, or even just as a, mm-hmm. a as bass or mm-hmm. whatever instrument you're playing, where you've actually been part of the show? You've been like on stage? Well, Forbidden Planet was exactly that, where right. we, we had to run around in space suits. Oh, right. Um, and so that's, that's what there was the point of it, that we didn't just, we weren't a backing band, but we had to be literally running because we're in a spaceship, we're in space suits, our instruments are weapons, and everything we do, we had to think of it as part of this kind of um, military exercise. Right. So we lit, we <laughs> physically had to run, you know, when we got hit by an asteroid storm. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> we had to, and the spaceship's like rocking back That's and cool. forth. So we're running around and, um, yeah, I mean, that, it, was, it was great fun. I got to open the show on drums. The drum kit was on a revolve right. and play Wipeout. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so on. And as soon as it kicks in, the revolve that the drum kit was on revolved. Right. <laughs> and, and, and then the next thing you know, you're facing upstage to a massive screen to the earth as you're leaving it. And it's... <laughs> That's brilliant. It was kind of a multi-million dollar flop. 
Like it was, it was quite the production, but it was odd for Australians, I think, because the Brits got the Shakespeare. That's more the in their culture. Yeah. Um, Whereas the producers that put it on here, they they kind of wanted to play down the the Shakespeare. Were they trying to go with a War of the Worlds type? Because that was pretty big. A little bit, I suppose. A little bit of. Yeah. Maybe, but yeah, it could have been then. I get what you're saying. Mm. Um, yeah, so yes, uh, Smoke and Mirrors was a, and another show, so of which I was an MD, was, um, mm-hmm. a thing called Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Yep. Um, that was before Smoke and Mirrors? Yes, yeah. both with Iota, yep. same director. Yep, yep. yep. Um, so we were, the band was on stage, and though we didn't necessarily have any acting to do, we had to be present as part of the scenery. Um, in Hedwig, we were a kind of, um, yeah, gothic punk trailer trash band, mm-hmm. glam trash band. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we, yeah, we sort of had to respond, I suppose, to the moment. And in Smoke and Mirror, we, you know, every now and again, we were brought forward to participate a bit more, um, you know, as in, in, integral to the action um yes and every now and again you just have to be there i'm gonna be in a show next year called come from away which the band has to be part of the part of the action it's about do you know have you heard about this show no it's a the story of um the day that um the disaster of the 2001 september 11th attacks took place Mm. all these planes were rerouted to land in Newfoundland off it's an Atlantic province off the coast of Canada because they couldn't enter American airspace so uh, 70 odd planes came to land in this tiny little nowheresville airport and Mm. they had to stay there for days and so they were kind of taken all these passengers were taken into the into the hearts of the town and, you know, get fed and clothed and had their clothes washed and they, and so it's the story of that, those few days. Wow. And it's, yeah. And it's Can you imagine the emotions of those people? Yeah. Wow. And I think that's why it's such a popular show. Not knowing what's going on. Very emotional. That's right. Yeah. Mm. So um, that is, well, the band is integrated in some way. I haven't seen the show yet. I've seen clips but I can see that they're, you know, they're all part of the action. I don't know if that answers your question. No, totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So are you are you MDing that, or are you? Pl- no, I'm, yeah, ju- I'm just, just playing on that. Uh, yeah. Okay. So it's currently playing in Melbourne with a, another cast and band. Okay. Well, it might be the same cast, but I think there are some band members that aren't continuing on. Right. Okay. All right. Well, let's um, we'll talk about here a little bit. Okay. The big one, eh? It was a big one. Yep. Um. Now, yeah, so how how did how did it come about? I mean, everybody knows about Hear the Musical. Yeah. How did this... Um, Not to be it, confused with Hairspray, the musical. No, no, yeah. <laughs> um, how did this inclination, incarnation of, of that show come about? Right. How did well, you... Um, how were you offered the gig? How was I offered and how the did gig? You, how did you put it together? Okay, here's the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, back in 2007... Hedwig and the Angry Inch was produced by a producer called David Hawkins, who I'd met through other friends in the industry and so on. Um, so he hired me for that gig back then. And in then, you know, he's gone off and done other projects and I've gone off and done other projects. 
And then this time, he hired a guy called Andrew Warboys, who I work with often, a great friend of mine. And then Andrew was involved with the Wharf Review. So the dates started to not line up anymore. So we got another MD called Glenn Morehouse, great guitarist. Then something happened there and they parted ways. So I got rung up three weeks before (laughs) the rehearsals were starting to see if I wanted to MD this show. And I kind of went and thought, okay, um, would have really preferred three months' notice. Yeah. Um, so it was, I was under the pump for from the minute I said yes. Okay, so from that point, had work been done? Nope. Nothing. Okay, right. Yeah, so that's you, you right. So you were building it three weeks that's out. That's right. So Bu- uh, building, I, building the band, the music, three weeks out. Yes, exactly. So wow. I had to book a band that was going to be ready to kick in to action Let's see, three weeks before the first rehearsal and we had three weeks of rehearsal. So I had six weeks to get a, to lock. a, a seven and then nine-piece band together. Yep. Um, so I spent a lot of hours just ringing people, okay? This is a person that I would ring to play baritone sax, flute, piccolo and clarinet. They aren't available because there's no no lead up time. They're going yeah. to be doing that show in this yeah. show. Yeah. Anyway, I was I got lucky because on my third go, I got the wonderful Stuart Van de Graaff to come on board, and um, but it was the same with a few drummers. In fact, I rang Steve mm-hmm. first uh, because I understood that he'd already been approached by the former MD. Oh right, they'd made a little promo clip, but then. When Glenn left, Steve had never been engaged. I didn't realise that. Mm. Steve had never been formally engaged. Nobody had, which was a bit weird, actually. Anyway, (laughs) so (laughs) with that little time left and, I mean, maybe for whatever reasons, um, and I can't wait to have a conversation with Glenn about it (laughs) because I'm sure there's all sorts of gossipy tidbits that I need to know now, (laughs) now that it's over. Um, but that he he just didn't see fit to to get his band together. Maybe thinking, maybe I won't stay on this journey. I don't know. Um, right. Anyway, Steve wasn't available, not for the whole run. Yeah. So I went, okay, best to get a drummer that's going to be available for the whole run. Mm-hmm. And then I started to build it. So I got Seb. He got he was on board. Um, and but then I was compelled to use trumpet players from the local state. So I had to get two trumpet guys from Perth, two trumpet guys from, uh, well, from Melbourne to do our Geelong. That was our next season. Then our next two seasons were Sydney area. So Wyong, Wollongong, then Sydney Opera House. Mm -hmm. And I had more or less, no, I had the same two guys that, that were able to do those. But there were a few times I had to get depths for the rehearsals and the sound checks and, Man, it was just the biggest wrangle. Mm. In the end, even though we only had seven musos uh, for the states or for the cities that we were in up until Sydney Opera House, which we expanded then to nine musos, all over I had 19 musicians involved in that whole thing. Our final destination was the Gold Coast at this um, cool outdoor theatre called Hota, 
H-O-T-A, Home of Theatre Arts, and they have this beautiful outdoor, um, wouldn't exactly call it an amphitheatre, but very interesting stage, especially for a theatre show. Right. Like, they can see concerts there mm. easily. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that so th- uh, there was that. There was the band, and then there was preparing the cast. And I didn't have a rehearsal pianist, and even though I can play the songs, like I can chunk through the chords and, and, a, and a company, mm-hmm. um, to do that and be doing the other jobs that I had, uh, the producer realised I was going to need someone. So I found oh, a blessing, a keyboard player named Ben Kina that I'd done another show with last year. He came on board as keyboards too. And as luck would have it, he had done a production of Hair in the past, an amateur oh. production. So he knew it. He Great. was able to do all the, what they call note bashing, basically. Just playing the notes, this is your part. Uh-huh. You know, these are your, this is your harmony. The altos are going to sing this part. Right. So he did all that. I did some of it, but he did the bulk of it. While I was preparing an entirely new book, for the keyboard player, <laughs> even though he, he could play the conductor's score, I didn't want someone playing the conductor's score yeah. in the band because yep. it's not the same part. Right. The keyboards are like there's organ bits and, you know, stuff where there's much more space or where they don't play at all. But right. the conductor's score has it's got all of it. everything. Yep. Um, and I thought, ooh, I don't want that. And he's enough of an improviser to be able to to go through and play chord charts, mm. but not enough to if the notes are there to, to just read all the notes, and I didn't want that. So I spent, you know, weeks putting together this book because mm. also he finished the tour before the Opera House where I had to get another keyboard player on oh, to play right. the Opera House and Gold Coast. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I feel like I'm raving on a bit too much about my trials and tribulations with hair. Um, but, you know, we did it. We got there and the band were monstrously good. Mm-hmm. The cast was divine. They sang, you know, they just sounded great. What a bunch of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and we scraped through to opening night in Perth. And from then on, there were, you know, big highs and big lows because there were stresses and strains with various um, personnel like production managers, company managers, changing hands midstream. And that's a bit of a, you know, that was a, a sticking point because you had to kind of go back to square one every time you turned up in a new venue. Or not every time, but every ask other what time. It was like going, getting to that new venue. So, yeah. so what, what do you mean go back to square? In what, in what way? Were they trying uh, to make you change the? No, no, no. Well, we had our, like we had our. Um, f- the first thing I was asked to do, funnily enough, which didn't even have to kick in until well weeks and weeks later, was stage plan. I need to have a stage plan. This is our first production manager, right? Okay, uh, here's a stage plan. Uh, um, Barry over here, and the trumpets there, and the guitar here, and we'll situate ourselves like that. And we we're on stage. We were integrated into the right. action. Um, so that's cool. So we arrive there and, wow, all our things are in position. Um, the drums are exactly where I said they should be and that's cool. Um, and then we went through things like how to hear ourselves, you know, in-ear monitors, etc. We had this 
funky little app instead of having an Avion mixing console yep. for each musician, they had um, we just use our iPhones or our smartphones mm-hmm. um, to we got the app and we could wow call it up and there's our little desk we get in the Wi-Fi and we could say I want um, this person louder than that person we did the band we did the all the the entire cast and um, that was cool then we get to Geelong. Did it work in Geelong? Mm. Um, I forget if it worked in Geelong, but it didn't work in Wyong. Couldn't get the Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi. work. Wi-Fi, oh, wow. Fuck. So, <laughs> Fuck. So then somebody turned up, here's an iPad, share it around the band. So we'd go, okay, here's the iPad, share it around. We we got our mixes sorted in our cans or our in-ears or whatever. Can't, can't change it. Yeah, well, what? as long as the iPad sits there in the, in the band pit, right. you can, but... Yeah, it's not as great. But yeah, anyway, we may do. Once you once you set it, it's more or less stable. Okay. More or less. And then we went to Wollongong. Didn't work again. Same thing. It's just a little stressful because every time you start again, mm. and that's when we, oh, my God, we got to Geelong and that's when our first production manager flew the coop. So we get there and. Well, un- unplanned. Unplanned. Nobody knew that he was going to be on a plane to Brisbane when we were bumping in. And so the whole thing of bumping is all the production personnel are on board doing stuff, doing what they do. And that involves, um, you know, putting the scaffold together that is the set and situating the the mic stands and the chairs and Mm -hmm. this and that in the band pit and running cables and all that. Mm-hmm. So, sheesh, that didn't happen. So we, we lost a bit of time, but, you know, we made up time and we got it. We got through it. You always get through it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, um, so Wyong was, then, oh, then we took on a new production manager. He was cool, and by the time we got to Wyong, it was cool. But we still didn't have what we had in Perth, perspex around the drums, which made it very noisy and difficult to mix and to I, and loud for I saw, everyone. I remember seeing a Facebook post oh, really? of yours asking for some perspex screening. Ah! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what that was. I for. ended up spending hours of my time <laughs> researching. Let's buy some perspex and own it instead of yeah. renting it at some exorbitant rate. Right. <laughs> Which ended up happening by the time we got to Wyong. Mm-hmm. Finally, the new production manager. I don't know, used petty cash or something and found us some perspex and we put it in and yay. So that was great because just all these tiny little details, like the roof of uh, where the band was situated, the first time we were there they had soundproofed it with some absorbent soundproofing stuff and it was great because it didn't reflect and mm-hmm. it was and it absorbed a lot of sound. Um, the cast didn't get walloped with it. Mm-hmm. So then from between Wyong, which was our last stop before Sydney Opera House, I thought, okay, I'm going to do like a motherfucker of a stage, not a stage plan, but input, just redo everything and make it no stone unturned to make sure that the guitar cables are running from the guitarist stations. We had we added a second guitar for Sydney, uh-huh. so we had two guitarists, and that they would both have cables running to their amps, which were off stage because they couldn't be on stage. They would just be yep. so loud. Um, 
just all these little things. And we get there and where are the guitar cables? What guitar cable? You know the ones in the... Oh, different production manager. New production manager. <laughs> oh, my God. So not his particular area. It's like, funnily enough, our first guy was a rock guy. He did, he did like... Um, uh, Splendor in the Grass. Like he sort of does that kind of festival stage yep. production management, but not theatre. And then the next guy was somewhere in between. And then the third guy was more theatre. He knew all about the scaffold and everything that had to happen with the set, not so much the band. Didn't know the just the little details about sound checking and so on. And, mm-hmm. and you know, everyone's doing their best, but if it's not your area of expertise, it just isn't so... That's why I thought I'm going to help out and and give him everything. So, like, he said, thanks so much for that. That's great. But then, oh, yeah, so he had the leads by this stage. They were ready to go, but an amp was missing. Uh. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Gold Coast. So, Sydney, we didn't have the leads. (laughs) So that's why before the Gold Coast I went just to be doubly sure. So we get to Gold Coast and one of the guitar amps just hasn't made it from Sydney. They were standing next to each other. I don't know what happened. Mm. That didn't make it from Sydney. An acoustic guitar didn't make it from Sydney. Not one of our musicians, but one that gets used by one, a cast member on stage. So it was like that the whole yeah. time. And, and that's just the sort of superficial stuff. <laughs> so it, you just couldn't take anything for granted. Right. Um, yeah, and so once again, you know, it puts the sound check because you think we have they have cut into our sound check because we had had to have a media call, and the media call means that the media comes and takes, a, um, you know, a couple of seconds of footage of you doing Aquarius, the opening number of the show, and ready to do Aquarius twice, and so everyone's got to be ready at exactly at that time. Meanwhile, one we would have had our sound check bump in and all that between one and four o'clock, but now it's between one and three o'clock. So we've lost all this time. We've got a new trumpeter and a new keyboard dip um, for the Gold Coast, just for the rehearsals, just for the dress rehearsal. I mean, it's just... (laughs) Yeah, so it was just like that. See, for me, my... my, The way I think something like that would go... Mm -hmm. What, like you were saying, op- opening nights hard, mm-hmm. and then from there, it just gets easy. Like, yeah, I've always thought that, eh? But yeah. no, never again. <laughs> I never think that <laughs> well, again. Well, this was sort of unique because it was, you know, there wasn't as much run up time as you might have hoped for. If I'd had, like, I knew about this show almost a year ago because the original MD was going to hire me as a bass player. Right. So I remember hearing about it at least 10 months ago. Had I known about it six months, even three, I would have had just enough run-up. I mean, three months before rehearsals started. Yep. I would have had enough time to get the same players that I needed to go through the entire tour. Okay. I would have been able to book the same guys even, but they wouldn't have had the next gigs that they couldn't. I oh, can't do it past the Gulf, can't do it past Sydney, can't do it past Wollongong. I just booked my next Whatever, you know, you just miss me. Mm. Um, so that I would have been spared that. But by the time I was getting to the, like, you know something, I'm going to take you all the way to Sydney and then I'll get someone else for the Gold Coast. Because by then, 
you know, we'll be up and running. And, yeah. and, and so it was like leapfrogging. So as soon as one person finished, someone else took over. And we never mm. really had to do too many at once. When our keyboard player left, Wollongong was his last show. Our new keyboard player joined in Sydney and went to the Gold Coast, but he couldn't play the dress rehearsal in the Gold Coast because he was playing Chicago in Sydney. <laughs> so I had to get a Gold Coast guy or a Brisbane guy. In some ways, in the end, it was fine because I met lots of lovely musicians yeah, yeah, yeah. and now I know who they are for yep. the next time if there is a next time. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now <laughs> let's talk about Hear Me, Hear Me Raw. Ooh. Right. Uh, well, that was a great pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, another Opera House um, co-production. So Hair involved the Opera House mm-hmm. because they were part of the production um co-producing team, I suppose. Um, And similarly, they, I think they were looking for something to happen in the Opera House. Um, They'd, you know, they have a lot of these sort of special events like the Led Zeppelin tributes and I think there was a Joni Mitchell Mm -hmm. tribute. Um, I know that Olivia Ansel from the Opera House was hungering for a bit more female content Mm -hmm. Um, and, in fact, I just saw Emma Pask the other day and we were chatting about it because apparently it started from a conversation they were having. Oh. And then Olivia ended up asking Trevor Ashley, who has done several uh, very successful shows at the Opera House, and I've played with him in his back, uh, shows in the past. Mm. Do you know who that is, Trevor Ashley? No. He's a female impersonator. Mm-hmm. Uh He's a great talent and he's larger than life in every way. He's a big boy with a big voice and he does the range of like Shirley Bassey, Liza Minnelli, Judy Garland, Bette Midler, Cher. He's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been in some of his shows over the years mm-hmm. and he's done his own Liza show with a big orchestra and a Shirley Bassey production at the Opera House. So I guess they thought Trevor, he's theatrical and he knows about bands and music. And um, so he was the creative director of this show. Um, and Olivia, I don't know if she specifically asked for me or whether Trevor thought of me mm-hmm. um, as someone that might be, because, uh, you know, aside from being having a theatrical thing, I've got some certain amount of like rock cred that he thought I could put an all-female lineup together, mm-hmm. which I did. And then I did arrangements for 24 or so songs, mm-hmm. um, which was such a pleasure. Like, it was work, um, but I just love doing that. Mm. So who, who out was... there who's listening and wants arrangements done, <laughs> love it. Yeah. Um, who was the band? So for, on drums we had Elisa Portelli, who's recently been. Um, she's one of Georgia Rojas's students. Oh right, drum, okay. drums and percussion. Yep. Um, I met her doing workshops with him on Afro Peruvian and Cuban percussion, mm-hmm. and then I recommended her for In the Heights, which we did at uh, a show In the Heights that was on at the Hayes and then at the Opera House, mm-hmm. and she was on congas for for that. But I knew she was a kit player and I'd heard her play. So I, I asked Georgia, what do you reckon about Elisa? Would she 
the kind of drummer that would, he went, yeah, 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 she'd be great. Great reader, great groove. Mm. So I got her. Bev Kennedy on keys, who she's she's a trooper. She's been doing the music theatre thing for years and mm-hmm. she MDs and gets, she's been on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and, well, everything. She plays on everything. Um, uh, Mel, Melanie Forbes, who's guitar, uh, she's a woman that I've known. She's a Kiwi. Mm-hmm. She's been in Sydney for oh, a good 20 years. I teach her 15-year-old daughter bass. Mm-hmm. Um it's Tanya Bauer, who also had a career as a singer-songwriter around the 90s-ish, mm-hmm. and she's still playing. She's still doing a lot of gigs, keyboards and guitar. She mm-hmm. also plays. So I thought, <clears throat> we need someone that can do second guitar and second keyboard. Um, my divine horn section, Ellie Shearer on trombone, Abby McCunn on sax, the saxophones, I should say, mm-hmm. From alto tenor, I don't think there's any soprano in this one, alto tenor Barry and um, uh, Louise Horwood on trumpet. Is that eight if I covered us all? And the trumpeters, uh, the horn players rather, all had a go on keys three. Okay. Because they could, oh, they're just so musical. So yeah. there were times when I'm doing these arrangements like far out, there's no horns in it, but there's layers of keyboards, there's strings, there's bla- brass, there's clav. There's all sorts of things going on. I want it all. So, <laughs> so we had it all. Yeah. How much time did you have to put this together? Oh, never enough. Yeah, right. Well, I had, ooh, I don't know when I got started. Um, I think I started about three months okay. before the show, uh, something like that, and it just was right. I got going as cracking as soon as I knew I had the gig. Mm. Um, and then the band only, like I got together with the guitar girls a couple of times and then the band only had two rehearsals. Wow. And then our rehearsal, our technical rehearsal at the Opera House. So it went amazingly well. I would have loved more rehearsal time because mm. then it would have gone, we would have been much more relaxed and probably been off charts by the time. Right. It came to the show. And then, then so the, the singers had all been selected by Trevor. Okay. Um, Emma Pass, Tanya, Doko, Sarah McLeod, Christina New, Prinny Stevens, and, uh, and Melinda, Melinda Schneider. Schneider. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very eclectic mix of, of singers. Mm. It was a beautiful experience. And we'd hoped that it was going to happen again, and it hasn't so far. But I saw Emma the other day and we're... We're going to plot something. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I hope something like that can, can come to be again. Right. So with those those six singers, the songs that were selected, did they get to play any of their own songs or it was all? The only originals <clears throat> were um, Buses and Trains that Tan- Tanya, Tanya yeah. Bo- Doko wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and although she wasn't expressly the songwriter, she did contribute lyrics was uh, My Island Home with, oh, with right. Christine. Yep. So um, she wasn't the original songwriter, but she put her, because the song was written from a different vantage point, and she turned it uh, more into somebody from her uh, the island home that she came from. Right. Um, so, yeah, so we, we allowed that to be her original song. So, no, they were... Um, uh, tributes to the great 
female singer-songwriters of our time, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, about five months later, I was approached by a woman named Miriam Wax, who's now living in New York, and she sent me an email. I'd played with her around the Latin scene a bit years before. She went, you know, hey, long time no see, and I'm coming to Sydney and I've got this gig at 5.05 playing the great songs of women songwriters. And I went, ooh, that's interesting because <laughs> we just did one at the Opera House and she didn't know anything about it and the mm. two shows couldn't have been more different. Right. Her show was had much more obscure, much less commercial and gorgeous. I mean, she it was a beautiful selection of very interesting songs, Some of, many of them well-known, but there were enough unknown songs by... Um, prodigious songwriters from not always, you know, the USA, but from Chile and various places that uh, that made it a really different thing. And mm. it's certainly an, an inexhaustible field, I think. For sure. Mm. Do you still practice? <laughs> Great question. Uh, I do practice, but mostly it's repertoire. Mm-hmm. So, of course, mm-hmm. I have to practice that and then sometimes I just think, just practice some scales. That would be a good idea. So I go in spurts because mm-hmm. if I'm learning repertoire, then I'm not really just practicing technique. You might have noticed this bass that's in the living room that the white stand up one. Oh, when, when I walked in, I did, yeah. 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 Uh, well, that's something I need to practice just for technique because okay. it's a toughie. It's not something you can put down and. Yes, if I haven't pl- played it for a while, mm-hmm. it's it's tough. It's a different set of blisters to the electric, mm-hmm. and it's um, it's also you really have to kind of manhandle it. Right. Um, so I have to get into shape to play that one. I understand. And that is definitely a technique thing because if I don't have any technique for it, then it's it's double struggle. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that. I mean, not that I know. Personally, myself, but I mean that that is a fairly common thing with double bass, mm. especially going from double bass to electric. You need to be yes. You need to be doing both. You can't just leave leave the double bass and come back and. That's right. Yeah. Hopefully, you can nail it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't take too long. I mean, I say <clears throat> yep. three days of playing gets me back into a position where I can do a gig without being, you know, embarrassed or or <laughs> okay. um, in agony. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, it's a different thing. So, yeah. But, you know, I suppose I I could practice more. Mm. And yet there's, like, I was thinking lately, I kind of feel like practicing guitar again more. Just because I, I was actually inspired by, by Seb, watching him play and the things that he does. I think they're not out of my capacity to do, but I couldn't do them now because I just don't have the... Um, the fluency mm-hmm. on that instrument, and it wouldn't take that much to get to be able to do it. Then again, I thought, oh, now I've got to get my guitars in shape, and because my electric guitars are all in <laughs> one condition or another. Right, right. Have you? You think you've settled on your gear now, on your basses? Well, I haven't changed my my electric bass in. Ooh, uh, I don't exactly know, but. I'd say it's about almost 20 years. Wow. My five string, mm-hmm. I haven't changed since. I've gone back to my four string for um, for teaching. I play it a lot while teaching because all my students play four strings. Four string, yeah. So I'm enjoying playing that. 
And I've just recently started thinking, hmm, there's one or two things I wouldn't mind, and that, but that's not so much in the base. Uh, uh, what I will do is get myself, because I, I have a f- uh, 410 uh, mark base mm-hmm. cabinet. It's heavy. Mm. I mean, it's actually, it's light. Mm-hmm. It's light for someone that's not, you know, that doesn't weigh uh, 50 kilos and is my size. Yep. Um, but I don't need that on every gig. Mm-hmm. And so what I think I need to do is get myself a little 210. A little 210, yeah. That would yep. be just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, I settle on gear while I'm, I, if I get something I like, then I'm fine with it. Awesome. Yeah, I, mm. I'm not a gearhead. Yep. Although mm. when I hear people that are, and I think you've got great sound. Yeah, <laughs> Down right. is a great example. I mean, right. he's got lots of stuff, he and does. He he's into and it. Changes it all the time. He's yeah. Always thinking about it, and, and he has a beautiful mm. sound. So mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. You know, it's funny as I've been talking about this and that situation, and I think yeah, there have been pivotal people that have come through my life mm-hmm. um, and have. Uh, been the reason that I went in that direction. Yeah. Um, I'll mention the name John Marr, who's over in England as an MD now on the West End, uh, with Damien Cooper, who was in my band Delicatessen, which was my funky jazz project, originals project, um, who I met through, you know, you could just go on and on and I on. I know, and on. I know, yeah. yeah. Um, and like Richard, my partner that you just met, Yep. We're in various bands together. He's yeah. a, he's a singer, but as you can see, he's also has a production. Yeah. Sweet. Um, well, we haven't talked about. Um, I'm going to try and say the this. Latin world. I'm going to try and say Oriente Tres. Oh, very good. How'd I go? I think that's I pretty good. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about Oriente Tres. Okay. How did I go with that? Oriente Oriente Tres. It's pretty good. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, well, it's a very compact thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it involves that <coughs> upright bass, the baby bass there. Yep. Um, and uh, I'll show you on the way out, but Isaac's kit is here, that his stand-up bongo kit, which involves a wiro, which is the yep. that instrument that it's sort of mounted to one side. He's got foot pedals and he's got more bells. So foot pedals are uh, a clave mm-hmm. uh, block, mm-hmm. uh, a cowbell, more cowbells up the top, a cha-cha bell, a mambo bell, whatever, the, mm-hmm. the various functions, and a cymbal. And and Richard plays either nylon string guitar or piano, depending on whether we're doing salsa mm-hmm. or timba, which is a Cuban sort of slightly more modern Cuban salsa form, mm-hmm. um, and or sort of more as I describe it as gringo-friendly Latin music. Yep. There's, you know, things like Sway and um, uh, Bamboleo, the songs Bambuleo. that people, yep. you know, more, more people know if they're not into Latin music as yep. such. Mm-hmm. Um, so between us, the three of us, and we all sing, it's a big sound. It's, it's, it could be a six-piece band that only play, you know, three singers and three musos. Awesome. And so part of the reason it ended up happening, Richard and Isaac were doing a lot of duo work. Mm-hmm. Richard does solo stuff. Mm-hmm. Then Isaac came in, then they invited me to join. And then it, as we developed, it started to turn into more of a, uh, a thing, uh, you know, where 
we do functions. Uh, oh, cool. we, we, it started off more as a function band, mm-hmm. uh, you know, weddings and Christmas parties and all that mm-hmm. business. Um, so you can get more money as a three-piece than as a 12-piece, sure. which I've been, I've had a 12-piece band since 2010. And that, that must be tough. Yeah, it's tough. Especially, especially now, yeah? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, that band's been on, on hold for about a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been personnel changes, people move, people leave, people go, come and go, and I just, um, it's just tough. It's mm-hmm. a really tough one. I love it. I love the music that we play. Yeah. It's probably my biggest musical passion. Yeah, right. But just for the moment... I need to regroup sort of psychologically as well as personnel. Yep. Um, so, but, yeah, I, I, you know, I adore it that it's three trombones, violin, the Cuban trez, it's the three double, double course mm-hmm. guitar, and congas, timbales, bongos, key- keyboards, mm-hmm. and, and enough people to cover four vocal parts. Wow. Yeah. So it's a monster it's of a, a band. Monster, yeah. Um, yeah. In the in the heyday of that band, how often were you playing? Hardly more than four times a year. Oh right, okay. Yeah. Right. Um, maybe maybe three times a year, but okay. so you'd have to have at least one rehearsal for every gig. Okay. Once we kind of got up and running, I mean, it's over a seven eight year time span. Say eight year time span. Um, you started to get a handle on you know even though we sometimes you might play three times in three months. And then not for eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, so it averages out. But, you know, we'd get a bit of a run up and start to go, hey, we're actually cooking. Mm-hmm. We're not sort of flying by the seat of our pants. But as soon as there's any personnel change, it's hard. Mm. And you have to kind of retrain. And that's, I think, that's just where I stopped for the moment. Mm. Now, with obviously the change in the scene, gigs getting a little bit harder to come by for for people that were regularly playing, you know, pop and rock and mm. that kind of thing. Are you finding or are you seeing those particular people fighting their way into theatre, looking to get in? Mm. Are you seeing I that change? I haven't, no, I don't think so. I think okay. unless you get the taste for theatre or enjoy the... People aren't just heading in there to try and no, get a payday. So okay, cool. People like like Dan Marr, He's a theater guy, right? Oh, he like started he, theater. Yeah, that's that was his thing. Okay, and mm. there's another guy that I did uh, in the Heights with, um, Michael Napoli. He the guitarist that did that show also did lots of amateur shows, and so you know his he'll be around. He'll he'll right. pop up in the okay. in the world. Uh, I think you have to love it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there are people that just plain hate music theatre mm-hmm. and it's just not their thing. So, you know, why would they want to subject themselves to yeah, it? Yeah, right. And only if they did get called in, they might go, this isn't so bad. Actually, I'm quite enjoying this. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't always like all the music. I mean, I, I played um, on a Stephen Sondheim, which is real music theatre. Like that's kind of legit music theatre. And it was a great show, Assassins it was called, mm-hmm. about the um, the various attempts, some successful and some not, to assassinate American presidents right. over history, starting with John Wilkes Booth, who shot Abraham Lincoln. 
and there were a few failed attempts along the way. To one was Teddy Roosevelt wasn't was never a successful attempt. Anyway, um, JFK ending with him and the thwarted attempts at Gerald Ford, mm-hmm. two within two months by women. Mm. <laughs> anyway, and Reagan too. He got that's right. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. So um, anyway, uh, that's pretty straight music theatre and it's not to everyone's taste so it might not be a good starter song but once you get your thing you get your charts and you start to listen to it and you hear the words well they're clever very good (laughs) um some of the music is angular and maybe not friendly to listen to not memorable at first once you get into inside of anything you you can appreciate it yeah i understand I, i Years ago, I depped as a keyboardist on a meatloaf tribute band, Meatballs, Fat Out of Hell. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> and when I first put the cassette in the player to start learning my parts, I just went, ew, yuck, I hate this music. <laughs> I learned my parts and then... Um, <laughs> it's a pretty pretty great piano Yeah, 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 that, it's pretty full on. stuff, yeah. And then... Um, then we got on stage and one night we were playing Paradise by the Dashboard Light yeah. and I went, this rocks! Because <laughs> yeah. I just got awesome. inside yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. And I think you can do that with any music, yeah. even if it's not your taste. Yeah. Just speaking of Meatloaf, that was the, the first concert I ever saw when I first came to Australia was Meatloaf. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and it was fantastic. Like, you, you speak of Paradise by the dash, Dashboard right. Light. That was almost like a musical theatre, the way yes. they did that song. It's theatre, theatrical, yeah. You know, they had the yeah. props and they were dressing up, coming out the different parts and then it slows down and oh, it, was, it was brilliant, really, really good. Wow. Yeah, real clever. Exactly. It was it was high theatre. It high was theater, almost yeah. melodrama, yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, just in closing, is your is your book full? Is your, is your diary full? No. You ha- you're happy with the way it is? Look, I'm happy at the moment because yep. I know I have work next year. I have cool. a block of work. Awesome. And um, I'm hoping that the bits where I don't have that block, I'll get to do some of the gigs, which I love, which were all the Latin gigs that I'm involved in, a, a band called Barrio Sol, which is Boogaloo, New York, uh, where, where soul meets Latin. 70s, 1970s New York scene mm-hmm. was a kind of fusion time between right. the the Fania Latin scene and the all the soul stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's some Mucho Mambo gig. I've got, I'm in a West African band called Kayamba. Oh, cool. Usibo um, Bangura, I'm not sure if you know, no. that's his band. Um, my Tijuana Taxi plays next year, which... Uh, it's also one of the most joyous experiences musically. Right. Cumbia muffin. It, these are the these are the things that give me joy. Awesome. Yeah. And so if they if they didn't, then I would be I wouldn't care if I had a theatre show that ran all year. And I. Okay. But that's the only thing about taking a job. It's like maybe I can put a dep in for the theatre show because I really want to do something else that comes up. That's you know that's. Love that music. Great. And I enjoy all the people that are playing in that world. They're all fun. Yeah. Great value. All doing it because they love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Tina Harris, thanks so much for sitting down with me today. And Thank you, Stevie. 
going through your your history and wow. um, <laughs> just fascinating to hear all the all the behind the scenes stuff of the theatre stuff. And really, right, really really cool. I'm um, sure it's not always like that. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, can see your just your passion for music, the way you speak, and smiled the whole way through. It was awesome. Oh. <laughs> yeah, great. So um. Yeah, thanks so much. and um, Thank you. Yeah, hope we can do it again good, sometime. Good on you for doing this. This is such a cool project. Thanks, Tina. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Very good. All right, catch you later. Cool. See ya. Sayonara. Cover booty call, don't think they foresaw this at all When a secret rendezvous just got right out of hand Became a tale that will be told to the grandkids when they're old It wasn't an elaborate ploy to get to sing with the band Empezó con una cita, en el momento secretita En la vida nunca sabes lo que pasará Primero fue clandestino, pero esto fue el destino Fue escrito en las estrellas que se casará From the land of the long white cloud In the palm of her hand she can hold a crowd She can also rock the kitchen Yeah, her cooking's delish She's got a way with words and a comic bent A voice that must have been heaven sent And the pineapple hedgehog is her national dish Él viene de otro lado De la tierra de la sal And he can play la mierda out of anything Drums, charangos, zampona, you're a legend, mate, good on ya. And I bet you're super tough, she declined the real diamond ring. Increíblemente, que en alguna parte hay un Jack Pacara Jill. Están muy afortunados, nunca habría funcionado si ellos no tuvieran esa química febril. So, health and happiness to all, the ballad of the booty call is over now, so let the festivities begin. But there's something I've been musing about, and I just have to point it out. Did you know you can't spell merenia? Without Marin. <laughs>